0: Hi, everyone. Patrick here. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Wealth Standard Podcast, where we are talking about entrepreneurship. And I have an individual who I've known for several years, and it was just an incredible interview. His name is Chris Martinson. He's the co-founder of PeakProsperity.com and also the co-author of the book, Prosper, How to Prepare for the Future and Create a World Worth Inheriting. And we get into some really interesting topics and really peel back some of the layers on his perspective of the world. Now, the links to his website as well as all of his social media are going to be on the show notes. And so make sure you head over to thewealthstandard.com. Also, if you guys are listening through iTunes, we would love a review. If you would do that, that would help just get the word out and continue to spread uh, the message. So Without further delay, please welcome my guest for this week's episode, Chris Martinson. In 2018, the Wealth Standard podcast broke down the year into three seasons, each focusing on a principle from the inspired works of philosopher John Locke, specifically his philosophy on life, liberty, and property. In 2019, we progressed from principle to the ideal environment for building wealth and achieving prosperity. The theme was laissez-faire capitalism. For season two, it continues. The theme is entrepreneurship and intrapreneurship and how you apply the principles and environment to the individual. The guests ranging from economists to entrepreneurs to political influencers, authors, and more will teach you how to take your life to the next level. Now, on to the next episode. Chris, it's awesome to have you on. Thank you so much for taking the time. I guess the first thing, because I imagine some of our listeners know who you are, but for those that don't, would you mind telling your story and really what led up to what you and, and Adam are doing today with peakprosperity.com?
1: Sure. I'd love to. This is a story, if I'm being really favorable to myself, I'll call it enlightened self-interest.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What happened was I was a genius like everybody investing in the 2000 stock market. You know, I was a corporate kind of guy at that point in time. And all of a sudden, you know, my portfolio got shredded. So curious guy, started asking questions my broker couldn't respond to. And You know, my background is a scientist, so I like data, I like digging around, I like forming hypotheses, and one thing led to another, and soon I was asking him really uncomfortable questions, right, that he couldn't respond to, and then all of a sudden, I read this book called Creature from Jekyll Island by G. Edward Griffin. It talks about the money system and how the money system works, which surprised me, because here I am, I've got a PhD in a biological science, I've got an MBA, and nobody, somehow in all that education, more than anybody should go through. I hadn't learned how money works in the system. I, taught it, I was taught how to compete for it, all that stuff, but not how it was made. And this seemed like all of a sudden I discovered the headwaters of the Nile. I'm like, geez, a lot of important stuff happens here. So that led to this inquiry that ultimately, within a few years, I lost my passion for my job. I exited that very carefully. And I spent two or three years in sabbatical, just trading the markets, developing other ideas. All of a sudden I ran across this idea of how, you know, money was created, then how the economy actually works then looking at macroeconomics, looking at debt levels. Then I came across energy, peak oil, all those issues. And then of course the environment wrapped in as well. And I put all these pieces together and I said, I have to tell people about this. And it became a mission of mine. And I, you know, church basements, I'm just down there, you know, talking to anybody who'll come and, Really bad presentations when I started. Like, these are terrible. Like, anybody listening who sat through those, bless you, they were awful. But because it was such a big amount of material, it took forever to figure out how to distill it. So that's what I did. I went through this distillation process, and somebody in the audience said, hey, you really should put that online. You know, 100 people at a pop is not enough. And so I couldn't figure out how to do that and struggled. Started putting it online, and this thing called the Crash Course, 20 chapters, finished. I'd rather be good than lucky uh, or lucky than good. Either way, I got good and lucky. So the last chapter finishes in October of 2008, things fall apart and all of a sudden people were interested in the message and it got this thing called the crash course which should be a disaster. It's some guy speaking over about 3 hours of slides, right? It's just awful. Yeah,
0: it was it's just a vo- I remember it coming out. It was like just a voiceover PowerPoint. A voice,
1: just yeah. a voice. You know, I don't even think I used my face even maybe on the first slide and that was it, you know. But so it's just Anyway, it ended up catching on. People were ready for something to explain a little bit larger about the world. I'm an educator at heart, so it was very educational material. People came away saying, hey, I learned something. I feel smarter. I feel like I understand something. Why isn't anybody else talking about this? Why didn't my teachers explain this to me? So I caught on, got translated into 12 languages, and ended up through that experience interacting with and meeting my business partner, Adam Taggart. He's got all the skills that I desperately needed because I was running a one-man show. So he's got all this business and marketing savvy. He was vice president marketing for North American Mobile at Yahoo. And he was ready to leave that. We joined forces, created this thing called Peak Prosperity, which is our website. And that's kind of the short version of how we got here.
0: So you said you used a word that's interesting. You used the word surprise when you read A Creature from Jekyll Island. I mean, obviously it's a monster of a book. What was maybe the single most important surprise that you've identified?
1: Just that this is an ongoing pattern of bailouts and trouble. So it's really, I finally understood that this system of capitalism we're in is not capitalism, right? Where you have this creative destruction by Schumpeter, right? Businesses undergo that process quite frequently, but not banks, not the banking system. They're shielded for everything. So it's really a heads they win, tails you lose. And G. Edward you know, he goes through many, many years of history, you know, savings and loan, the railroad crisis, all these different crises to show that the banks made all this money while they were busy inflating and doing dumb things and taking risks they shouldn't. And then things crashed and they got bailed out. So heads they win, tails you lose and wash, rinse, repeat. So when I read that, it was kind of like um, almost as eerily prescient as 1984 by George Orwell mm-hmm. has been of late, where once I had read that, I understood the blueprint for what was going to happen. From the crisis onwards. And it's everything that he wrote about happened again. And so that was surprising to me that it's this well known, it's this obvious, it's this repeated, and it's still not talked about. So it it surprised me to find it in his book. I had to go and research it. I thought, this guy must be wrong. Turns out he wasn't wrong. And when I had a chance to interview him a few years ago, I led off with a question. I said, hey, Ed, your Wikipedia opening paragraph says, gee, Edward Griffin, noted American conspiracy theorist, conspiracy, <laughs> conspiracy like all this denigrating stuff, right? Yeah. And so I said, Creature from Jekyll Island came out, what, I think 1996, mm-hmm. maybe 98, I forget, somewhere back there. So I said, look, 20 plus years has passed. How many people have come to you with concrete things saying, here's where you got this wrong or this wrong or this wrong in your book? Because it's all names and dates and it's all sourced. And he said, Chris, in the entire time it's been out, he hasn't received one single piece of counterfactual information, hasn't had to issue any retractions, hasn't had to correct anything. But still, he's conspiracy, conspiracy, conspiracy kind of guy, right? Because what he did was he touched a nerve. He actually showed how the banking system operates. And that's kind of a no-no in our culture. So thanks to him for doing that. But it really, it surprised, I think the biggest surprise, the biggest was, how did I not know about this, right? Right you'd think after all that education and going through all this system and getting to the level i i made it to vice president of saic i mean i'm not a not an unaccomplished person and i'd never even heard this information before so hmm. hidden in plain sight is kind of the shock
0: well it's not you know a lot of the information he goes through isn't part of the typical narrative right of what finance is of hmm. what politics is and so it's it's interesting where yeah you have that book that was written and you have a lot of people still speaking to maybe not exactly what that book alludes to, but I would say there's more that understood kind of what led up to the 2008 crisis and maybe more of what's going on today with where we're at. But yet the typical American is just not aware of you know how banking works. They're also not aware of what history shows us in regards to how intervention leads to unintended consequences. Right. So right now with peak prosperity, which is the which is a podcast. It's a blog. You guys write a tremendous amount. What's its mission and vision right now? Is it kind of to carry what you have discovered over the years to more people, or is there something different?
1: Well, it's two big parts. One is problem definition and education around that, right? So I think without appropriate context, The other part of our mission, which is about helping people become more resilient, more prepared, so on the solution side, you can't even start with the solutions until you really understand what you're up against. So we ask everybody to start with the context, and you don't have to agree with us, you know, look at it, have your own opinions, say we're completely wrong, that's all fine, but for people who look at the world this way, and it's just a lot of data, right? So when you look at all three E's in the story, economy, energy, environment, when you really look at them from a systems perspective, you go, wow, this this is unsustainable. It's going to change. And then the big question, of course, is, well, how and how do we prepare for that? So those are the two big pieces, the outreach portion. And it's a little bit like, you know, anybody who's watched like Hidden Secrets of Money by Mike Maloney, he's doing an incredible job about money. But we're also layering in this ecological context that's necessary and the energy context, also Mm -hmm. necessary. You get that in one spot, and it gives you this point of view of where the world is going to head. And so then what do you do about it? And that's part two. This is really why we exist, because our mission at Peak Prosperity is to create a world worth inheriting. I'm pretty convinced, based on all the data and trajectories I've got, we're on the wrong path. We're not doing that. So that's, you know, I wake up every day. What do I do? I'm actively trying to figure out how to create that world worth inheriting. And it means mostly we have to change the narratives that people hold so that they can align their actions with that new narrative.
0: So maybe go into that. First off, maybe explain what your data, what the data is telling you today about where we're at, and then going to your mission, how is the context, how is the narrative that you see the world through different than mainstream?
1: Well, you know, narratives are hard to change even at the individual level, and they get even an order of magnitude harder to change at the cultural level. So at the cultural level, you might have something like, you know, here's a statement, be fruitful and multiply. I think that was a great guiding principle 2,000 years ago. It's a little (laughs) bit less obvious that that's, you know, the biggest challenge before us or the thing we should be focused on today, but there it is. And what we've had is this narrative that said humans are are at risk, we're at war with nature. Even 100 years ago, people were still battling nature. But now we've hit the edge of the globe and the data is all parked there, right? So when you look at a number of fish declines in the ocean or seabirds or the disappearing insects or what's happening with the soils and their disappearance and you know, the fact that glaciers are just disappearing at this point in time or whatever, right? You can just say, okay, we don't have that same narrative of a hundred years ago, which is our imperative is to grow and grow as fast as possible. But that's the story. That's the story we all live by. Every portfolio, every investment is geared for infinite perpetual growth. Yep. And listen, hey, that might happen, but the data I have says, well, now let's look at that imperative for growth. All growth comes from energy, and you would know this if you were just an organism and your primary source of energy is food, and you deprive an organism of food, it gets stunted. At best, at worst, it dies, right? So the question is, well, where's all this energy going to come from? And when you wander with me over to the energy field and you look at really where we are in terms of global oil discoveries, and yes, we're tapping more stuff in the shale plays, but they're not tasty like the old ones. They're a little harder. Still worth getting, but not the easy stuff. It's kind of like we've eaten through the fat on the seal, but now we're kind of gnawing on some ribs, right? That's fine. But the question is, what's after the ribs, right? And in this story, there's nothing because the ribs in this story are the basement rocks. There's no pre basement rocks. Like this is the source stuff. And we don't have a plan for what we're going to do when, not if, but when those run out, right? And again, this isn't super far in the future, right? This is within our lifetimes that they'll probably tip over and go backwards. The EIA itself in the United States thinks that shale grows till about 2025 and then it's in permanent decline thereafter, right? So 2025, that's like tomorrow, you know, particularly if you're a parent, you realize, wow, those years pass quickly, you know, and the amount of changes we're going to have to make to live in a world where we have slightly less oil instead of slightly more oil is enormous and it impacts everything, jobs, careers, portfolios, hopes and dreams, pensions, everything you can imagine touches that. Because the truth is, energy is the dominant thing, and everything else is a subset of that. Elon Musk and AI, and if you don't have this energy, you get none of that, right? So that's the part I've been trying to alert people to, is to have this bigger perspective. And what I'm trying to do is teach fish about water. And we're so surrounded by this water while i get me to call energy that we don't notice it. I mean, even right now, I've got lights on me and 71 degrees and you know all the stuff that, that's the equivalent of having hundreds of energy slaves bringing me this amazingness. And that's something to appreciate, have gratitude for, don't take it for granted and think through what happens when, not if, when that begins to go away. And our country is not prepared for this at all. Zero preparation for that.
0: How do you help people reconcile the advances that have been made in other energy sectors? Because I, I look at the things you've been saying regarding peak oil for a number of years, right? And clearly there's been you know lots of innovation and different alternatives. So how do you help readers really reconcile this idea that we're going to run out of oil and there isn't an alternative to it?
1: Well, first up, it's hard because the average person listening to this, you really have to almost become an expert in it to understand it. And so the headlines that you might read about it are always geared towards puffing up the current narrative. And so I get these all the time. People say, oh my God, Chris, look at this. These scientists took something and here's a beaker of it, or they've got this new battery that can do X or wait, look at these ultra capacitors, right? And then every time I scratch at it and go, oh, it's on a bench somewhere and they're using rare material. So it won't scale possibly, or it's wicked expensive, or, you know, in many cases, people are confusing a source of energy with a store of energy, right? And so once you start sort of picking at that a little bit, you discover that the time, the scale, the cost in this story are really extraordinary. So let's imagine, sake an argument, we all want to drive electric cars. What do you have to do? Well, in the United States, we need a whole new electrical grid. We're going to, to supply that amount of electricity. We need to discover new sources of electricity, which is going to be a, a challenge all on its own. And is there enough lithium and cobalt? Well, not right now, but maybe if the price went up a lot, wait, are there enough plants to build this? No, not yet. Do we have enough engineers? No, we don't So once you start looking at it, it's hard in this consumer culture because you know what's amazing? I go on Amazon, I click a button, and the big brown truck of happiness rolls up tomorrow. But what I'm unaware of is the incredible logistics and supply chain that had to be in place for that to be true. That's all equally true in the energy space, only we don't have that Amazon warehouse built yet. We don't have the supply chains. We don't have the infrastructure in place. None of that's been done yet. And so that's the thing I keep coming back to people with is like, yeah, I'm as hopeful as the next person but we're not putting our attention there yet. We will, I hope not before it's too late, but right now, you know, our attention is like, you know, creating trouble with Iran or, you know, pumping more money into the stock market so it goes higher. We're doing things that are buying us time, but we're not using the time. And that's my prime complaint, as it were, around this.
0: Yeah, as you've been speaking, I've been just realizing how, I don't know, it's superficial the way in which we process information these days. We only go one or two levels deep And, you know, as I followed you over the years, I mean, you could look to those innovations and clearly they're there. But when you start to go into the third and fourth and fifth and sixth layer and see how integrated the oil world is, whether it's in the supply chain or whether it's in the plants or the origination of the actual energy, it's fascinating. So you're still seeing a problem, even though there's been innovations, there's been improvements, maybe on that first or second level those levels deeper, there are still some pretty significant issues.
1: Yeah. And it's fairly complex, but not really if you think it through just a little bit. So you know, people say, well, Chris, well, what about renewable energy? And I heard somebody, Nate Hagen's actually re it for me and it's stuck ever since, which is it's actually replaceable energy. So let's look at a solar panel. They're great. This cost has come down a lot. They actually create electricity at a fairly cheap rate when the sun is shining, of course. But the question is, how'd the panel get there, right? So, I don't know, some workers showed up. Well, what did they eat? Food. How'd the food get there? Well, it was growing on a field. How'd that get, you know, once you do, you find every single thing involved in getting that panel there, there was oil involved somewhere from the mining of the silica to the manufacturing plant, all that. We don't have, we have this many examples so far where we have a replaceable energy system, be it a wind tower, a solar panel, an electric car where that entire thing is created using only the energy from that same system. We understand it intuitively with farming, right? The sun is the energy in the system. And if a farmer can't grow more crops using that energy than in calories and they're expending, you know, they're going to go into deficit. Or if a cheetah spends a thousand calories catching 800 calories of gazelle, eventually they run into trouble. So the question is, can we create these replaceable energy systems using only their own energy? And the answer is, we don't know. But that'd be a great experiment, you know, instead of another half trillion to the bankers, let's put 10 billion towards creating a model place where that's exactly what happens, right? Put up panels, build them only with electricity using electrons from panels and create more panels and then watch what happens. Do that one or two turns of the cycle. That'd be a good experiment. But right now, there is so much hidden fossil fuel subsidy in that whole part. I think it's a mistake to think that you click the button and the panels show up, right? There's a lot in between those two steps.
0: Yeah, it makes total sense. So that's an interesting conversation. We can go off probably another hour on that because of how, you know, especially right now with what's going on in, you know, the Middle East and the turmoil is clearly increasing and who knows what's going to happen. But typically it's all always associated with oil to some degree, correct?
1: Absolutely. If you don't understand that where we are in the oil story, none of the geopolitics makes sense. It has nothing to do with Iran's. You know, we don't like their leaders. It, listen, they're horrible leaders all over the world. The United States never says anything about. They don't happen to be sitting on any oil. So look, I've been to China. And I've talked with people who are fairly high up in the Chinese leadership structure. There are a lot of scientists there. They've got a lot of PhDs. One gentleman there said to me that, this was when Obama was president. Someone caustically said, Chris, we don't have any community organizers at the top, because that's Obama's background as a community organizer. I said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, to really get anywhere in China, first, you have to have managed at least 100 million people for a couple years, and then you sort of break your way up and you work through, and you, everybody has an advanced degree, and they don't have lawyers. That's not a specialty that they revere. Compare that with Washington, D.C. It's like almost all lawyers, right? <laughs> um, and so... When I talked with them about the resource stuff, they get it. China got it. They said, look, the business of China's business, the business of the United States is war. That's fine. We just think we'd rather go about this with our magic checkbook. And they understand where they are in the oil story. They admitted to themselves when their own peak of oil was going to happen, which was 2018. It's now in the rearview mirror. China's publicly announced that. They know they've got big issues. They also know they can walk to the Middle East, which is a very distinct advantage to countries that have to sail there. So they know they've got their eye on the prize, and that's really the larger game that, that's happening here behind the scenes. Everything you want to know about Russia, why the United States is so at odds with Russia that right now, you have to understand the power Russia has, given that it's very few people, a massive eight-time zone property with a lot of natural resources, in, including oil and gas, which they're supplying to Europe and increasingly to China. That's a really important lens to have in this story.
0: So your listeners, I'm assuming they're not just domestic, you have listeners, you have readers that are around the world. What are you seeing them take away from what you're teaching them regarding these points and the other things you guys write and talk about?
1: It's a good question. You know, in the English speaking countries, so that's uh, primarily UK and Australia, I think I'm noticing a lot of people who are gravitating to this message saying, "Ah, we're on the same path. There's no, oh, hey, here's how we're doing this amazingly over here. There's almost a resignation that it looks like things are going to have to get worse before they get better. So this is noted in in particularly every English-speaking country has, in most of Europe too, I would say, is on the same path right now, which is increasing totalitarianization of their society, right? More oversight, you know, fewer actual civilian liberties, as it were, an increasing neoliberal sort of event, which means very, very few people getting most of the gains so that the pyramid's getting really tall and top-heavy and except in maybe Italy where I think they broke that model and so we're all starting to see that rise of populist pressure as the unfairness of that because these the tippy top of this pyramid let's be clear these people didn't get there because they built more awesome stuff for the most part most of them got there because they siphoned money out of a system that creates money better right so they're skimmers that's fine but it's a very unfair thing we're all primates and we don't like unfairness right so it's unfairness is one of the worst social sins you can actually commit. And it was Plutarch all the way, way back who said, the oldest and most fatal ailment of all republics is a gap between the rich and the poor. But if that gap is created out of thin air, at no work and no risk and handed to a small crew of people, that's where the unfairness really builds.
0: You know, the strong narrative regarding media and news,
1: I mean, you still have a huge influence from that top. Do you see that going away? No, they're working harder at it. And They've gotten a lot better at that control as well. You know, this is something that myself and a number of people I consider colleagues are observing uh, very much how we get shadow banned is maybe too strong a term, but we get heavily throttled on places like Twitter, like Facebook. Instagram, other places where they have algorithms that as soon as you say something about the system and about the unfairness of it, for whatever reason, you'll notice that you'll put that tweet out and it'll get maybe eight to 9% of the engagement that would be typical. So it's just throttled in some way, shape or form. So that ability to shape the narrative is really critical. And there are two ways they're going about that as well. On the other side, one is the sin of commission. Okay, they just lie. They make stuff up, right? And then there's omission where they don't talk about stuff. And one of the biggest omissions I saw this year was for the past half year has been the yellow vest movement in France. France, yeah. Yeah, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, lots of injuries. has got blood, violence, gore, you know, and it uh, wasn't picked up, wasn't talked about. You know, there was almost a virtual ban on that in the U.S. media. I talk to people all the time. It's like, no, I didn't hear about that. I'm like, oh, my God, it's like one of the biggest things ever. So that's a sin of omission, where they just leave stuff out. And so it's kind of a horse race where social media for a while was allowing people and the internet was allowing people to go out and find that new information. And now there's throttles on it. I mean, you've seen YouTube say, well, we've got algorithms, we're going to ban anything that they consider hate speech, conspiracy theory, whatever, right. And these things always start with like one thing you could sort of justify, but then it spreads rapidly, you know, and now we find if you wanted a better definition of fascism, which is a merger of corporate and state, the so-called progressives in this story are engaging in some of the most fascist behavior I've seen, which is we're going to burn books, right? That's the equivalent of burning books when you're like, oh, we, we know which ideas are harmful, right? I grew up at a time when ideas, even if they were harmful, you were free to go, I don't like this one. And you could <laughs> encounter them and wrestle with them. I don't agree with this idea that there are harmful ideas, that if you expose people to them, that it ruins them. I don't fall under that. But for the nanny state people, they do. They think they hold the right views and they have to protect other people who aren't as high, who aren't as sophisticated. Aren't as, in,
0: aren't as informed as they are.
1: Yeah, it's it's really a very patronizing, you know, I'm better than you kind of a thing. And the funny part is a lot of people who are ideologues on both sides are some of the most misinformed people I know about because they get their own little echo chambers around things. And so it's uh, that polarization is strong. It's... I never thought I'd find myself here in the United States as quickly. And I do think that the seeds of civil war, I understand them now. Like I never quite got the Balkans and what happened and how does that really happen? And but now I get it, right? You know, what happens is you have powerful people who splinter groups and then stand them up against each other. And what I've been trying to do is to get those two groups to understand you're fighting the wrong people in this story, right? Police and protesters are actually on the same side of the story because these protesters are usually saying, I'm getting screwed somehow. And if the police understood what was happening with their pensions, they'd understand that actually this is where the problem is, right? And so everything that can be done to prevent that discussion of the top, that's what I see going on right now. And shame on those in the media who are complicit in that, whether overtly or covertly, right? Whether they understand that or not, they really ought to be asking questions about freedom of speech and providing appropriate context so we can have the right conversations. Because let me be clear, the trend we're on right now ends in a bad sort of a future that I want to avoid. I'm not dark and gloom and doom. I'm a very hopeful guy, but we don't have a lot of time to sort of wrestle the ship through a new direction.
0: So what do you see as maybe some signs of hope out there? Because it sounds like, you know, from your perspective, there may not be any, but do you see any, you know, reasons to be optimistic?
1: Of course, there are plenty of reasons. And not least of which is that the young people in this story a lot of them have a surprising amount and of course all revolutions start with the young in some way shape or form but but this is really setting up to be sort of a generational thing and i do talk to a lot of the older generation cuz they have the wealth they want to preserve and i get that you know you don't want to spend your whole life building up you got your there's the brass ring you know just not now now would be a bad time you know for it to all go away but the young people are looking at this story increasingly and saying wait a minute I don't have anything to gain from preserving the status quo. So we've seen, you know, the million-plus student marches against climate change in Europe. Young people I talk to are out there doing really incredible creative things around farming in a way that's regenerative and not destructive or extractive. It's hard work, right? But you have to understand systems in a whole different level. It's different from saying, oh, I know exactly when to apply the Roundup and the Neonics. You know, it's a different story. So I see people wanting to do the right thing. I see people doing the right thing. And so really the enemy in this story, if there has to be one, is are just the keepers of the status quo. They don't want anything to change. They want to keep their power and they'll do increasingly desperate things to keep that power locked in. But the more they do, you know, the the more this gets compressed and hope such as it is that exists for me is there will come a time when it breaks again and then we can have the right conversations. But only if people have the right understanding, the right context and are ready to take the right actions.
0: So, going into the way in which you analyze things, which is very quantitative, where do you see the role of the entrepreneur, which I would assume is sometimes difficult to put into an equation? Do you see that there are those that are young or maybe even aware of these issues and trying to do
1: something about it? Well, absolutely. A couple of things nested in there. First, the role of the entrepreneur. This is something that I want all my kids, I've trained them all to be entrepreneurs. I don't believe in working for a paycheck anymore, I haven't for a long time. You need to have multiple sources of income. Lots of people have been forced into that regime anyway, right? You got to be Uber driver on the side to make ends meet or, you know, the so-called gig economy things. But at the same time, an entrepreneur really is saying, hey, there are needs out there. I can meet those needs in some way, shape or form. Here's what I'm good at. Here's what I'm not good at. So I'll get a team together and we'll go and we'll do that. That I think is really the wave of the future. Anybody who's just sitting there relying on a single source paycheck is exposed. You know, next big downturn, it could go away. I don't care if you're a highfalutin lawyer at a white shoe firm or you're a driver for a long haul trucking company. If all you got is that one paycheck, you're at risk, right? And so everybody needs to understand assets, understand the system as it actually exists. And, you know, I get to talk with and hear a lot of stuff from Robert Kiyosaki of Rich Dad Poor Dad. And he just keeps drawing this same grid and he just keeps pointing out that the people who actually draw a paycheck are just tax donkeys. Like they just hit it the hardest. And if you're a small business person, you know, you're the so-called entrepreneur, but you've got to practice you know, a, a CPA firm or a dentistry or something like that. Oh, you're getting, they're crushing you, 60% you know, marginal tax rates when all is said and done. But for people who are out in real estate or you know, if you get into more of the investor class, the taxes go away. And again, you know, when I came you know, in contact with them, I'm like, where was this information? Like, where was my dad with this information? But where was my schools, right? And it's kind of like this hidden secret. And once you find out about it, You know, kind of came out into the fore when Hillary Clinton during the primaries debates asked, you know, Trump, well, you know, you pay zero in taxes. And he said, that's because I'm smart. Right. Well, it's true. If humans respond to incentives and there are incentive structures out there that entrepreneurs find out about faster and everybody should learn what the system is and how it works and what it punishes and what it rewards. And I came to that story late in life, but once I found it out, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm absolutely going to use the system as it exists. But it's, again, it's not something that's really widely talked about. And that's an example. You said, what are the narratives that have to be changed? You know how hard it is to convince somebody that the whole narrative of, I go to school and I go to a really good school. I got to Harvard and I'm working for McKinsey. I'm a partner. Like even in that job arc, you stole a job, right? Right. You know, nobody ever really got rich working for a paycheck. And plus, those people are still plugged into that system of, you know, I have to give the right answers and do the right things to earn this paycheck. And so it takes time to back people away from that, deconstruct the narrative, help them understand what the tax code looks like, help them think about where their value is, help them think about what wealth really is and how you generate it. And, you know, not all things can be measured in dollars. So there's a lot of unpacking that has to be done before somebody's ready, I think, to really step off and bite the bullet and go down. Um, that particular path. But the future is obviously going to belong to people who can be nimble, be flexible, add value to whatever situation. And the way I kind of waggishly put this, I tell people, look, even if you were in Leavenworth supermax prison, there's an economy in there, right? Mm -hmm. You can get whatever you want. Like humans will always have an economy. Don't worry about that. The question always in any circumstance, is what's on offer and what do I have to offer and how do I get what I want? And those are the pieces that entrepreneurs figure out earlier and faster.
0: Love that. Love that. So let's maybe end with this because I've heard you speak about this before and you've, I know you've written about it as well, but you have those entrepreneurs that are naturally driven, that will take initiative, see problems, come up with solutions. But normally the process is there is some extreme pain, right? There's extreme adversity really where the narrative changes, the context changes, the way of doing things change. So maybe speak to that. And I know from what I remember, you guys have been writing a lot recently about uh, potential black swan events. So can you comment on those two things?
1: Well, sure. So, you know, listen, if you're an entrepreneur, you're out taking risks and you're going to fail, right? Things are going to go wrong. And of course, with entrepreneurs, you need to learn quickly that failure is just another way of finding out more rapidly what doesn't work. And so that took me a lot of deep programming, which was, you know, like if we're thinking about, oh, what's a new campaign? How can we reach more people? You know, I'm going to try and plot this whole thing out, but there's something to be said for the fail early, fail often, fail quickly, right? Just try something, learn from it and keep going. And our school system, of course, punishes that behavior. Everything's supposed to be the next right step, right? Mm-hmm. But entrepreneurs, very quickly, you need to find out what you're good at, what you're not good at, who are people you can really rely on, build your team, do all of that stuff and figure out how you can move quickly. So, you know, some people are just wired for that. They end up being entrepreneurs, right? They they drop out of Harvard because they have to start something called Microsoft, right? (laughs) But for other people, it's a for me, it's a learning process, right? How can I be okay with that? And I know people who change me because I watch them and they're actually excited by their failures. Like, yeah, that bit it early. Now I, you know, and I'm like, hmm, I would be a little bit more hesitant around that. And even though with everything that's going on in the world, as you and I are talking, I don't know that a tanker didn't just get sunk in the strait of Hormuz, and oil's about to triple in price, which could blow up a million business plans. And you need to be aware that these black swan events can happen, right? And so for people listening, a black swan event is coined by Nassim Tlaib. He's this uh, quant economist kind of guy. And a black swan event has three characteristics. One, nobody saw it coming, right? So it's rather unanticipated, has a really big impact. And afterwards, all the experts are going to tell you why it happened. Right, they'll explain it post facto, right? But because they didn't see it coming, they probably didn't have a good understanding. And and guess what? Black swans are a feature, not a bug. They're a feature of complex systems. And so all Nassim was trying to say is that if in a normal bell curve of possible outcomes, the tails are actually fatter than we're wired to believe. These things happen more frequently. So we need to plan for them. And so how do you plan for something that you can't anticipate? Well, you have to have resilience. You have to have sort of buffers. You have to be ready to change. Or operating methods very, very rapidly if something happens, right? So Black Swan, China decides they're not going to trade with the U.S. anymore and shuts their ports down, right? A million companies are screwed because their supply chains are entirely linked to that. The ones that survive are going to be those that spent zero minutes worrying about that and saying, oh, that's a done deal, and they found a new supply chain, right? And so these things happen. You got to be adaptable. You got to be flexible. And so what we found, though, which is interesting, is that this is almost entirely a psychological process it's not something you can teach at a martial arts studio. Like, Mm. you know, just do this, wave your hand like that and you'll be good. Right. Instead it's there. Can you train yourself to be flexible so that when something comes, you're able to still have something other than tunnel vision. You know, I'm, I'm ruined, right. That's a point of view. You know, I'm not going to be ruined. Other people will, I'm moving. I got to keep skating in this story. Right. So so really, the psychology of it's very, very important. And that's why, you know, we talk about eight forms of capital people can build up. That's on the solution side. I know we didn't spend a lot of time there, but one of them, the one, if somebody said, Chris, the most important form of capital, it's not financial capital. It's your emotional capital, right? If you fall apart, you know, at the first sign of trouble, I don't care how much money you have, right? And that's what we learned from all these crises. You study how and why people thrived. If not, you know, beyond survived. They thrived, say, in Zimbabwe. Or even right now, certain families are making their new fortunes down in Venezuela, you know, and you see all the chaos and the people who are screwed, their tunnel vision's just too tight. You know, when Russia finally broke apart in the USSR into Russia and in a satellite states, fabulous fortunes were made. And the difference every single time was there were people who looked at that breaking moment, saw the opportunity in it, and just skated into it as hard and fast as they could. Luck plays a little bit of a role, but Chance favors the prepared. So, yep, that's really how we're looking at this is is understand the context so that you aren't surprised and you can spend the least amount of time being surprised and so you can keep moving because there's going to be a lot of opportunity in this story and a lot of loss too.
0: So the, the catalyst for those that actually win in the
1: end is preparation. It is, it is. I actually like what Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert says about this in a book. He says, goals are for losers. It's systems, so if you have a system in place, so if, you know, the example he says is, if you say, oh, I want to lose 10 pounds, that's my goal. Almost nobody achieves that goal. But you put a system in place, which is, well, I'm going to wake up 15 minutes earlier. I'm going to eat one meal like this instead of that or whatever. You just put your system in place and then your system runs. And before you know it, you've not achieved that goal. You've achieved all these other goals. So the question is, what are your systems of mental preparation? How are you taking the time in any given day to make sure that you are as balanced And have as much space, mental space in your life so that you're appropriately charged, recharged, looking at the right things, asking the right questions, and not being afraid to ask the really hard questions, which is, hmm, am I doing the right things or should I even be doing this at all? Those are the sorts of practices and successful practices I think that really are going to separate those who thrive from those who don't. Well, this will be a promise. This will be the last question. What are maybe some of the things that you
0: are paying attention to right now that you're focused on as you know, information that's worthy of, you know, what you have learned about the past, whether it's, you know, stuff that's going on in the Middle East, whether it's the political environment, uh, the economic environment, maybe in some of those micro sectors, like what are you paying attention to right now that is kind of, you're assuming is going to tell you about what's to come in the future?
1: Well, again, the black swans, just nobody can predict. They come when they come and afterwards we'll all try and figure out what happened. In the meantime, I'm really fortunate to have this job that I do. To call it a job, even is kind of weird. I get to read all day, so I probably spend if if you say I'm probably reading close to eight to ten hours a day, and then writing and synthesizing. So I spend about a quarter of that on world events. I'm not a geopolitical specialist or analyst, and I think that's most likely where we're going to see a black swan event come. So I spend about a quarter there. I spend mm, maybe forty percent now just watching the financial markets because we have this theory, it's called from the outside in, that trouble's always going to start at the periphery. So, you know, everybody's talking about the stock market. Oh my God, you see what the NASDAQ did, but I'm watching the edge of this thing. And I'm looking at the triple C junk debt. I'm looking at, you know, funding that's happening at the margins. I'm watching the weaker countries. You know, this is where you're going to see the the first warning signs that something's gathering steam towards the center. And then I spend the rest of it just really stretching my mind out. And uh, right now I'm actually checking out a, full lecture series by a Stanford professor on uh, human behavior. I'm trying to understand how humans are wired so there's a biological side, so that's fun. Guess what, you can get a Stanford education for free if you have YouTube, right? It's pretty awesome, so great lecture series there. I'm reading a lot of books about things like NLP, human psychology, trauma, and things like that because I'm just trying to understand how we're wired and how that comes together, because what I care about is not that people have information but that they take actions, right? And so there's always a gap between those two things, and it turns out understanding belief systems and how we're wired are critical things to understand. Because guess what? You give somebody all the information in the world, they may still not make the right decision, right? It turns out, and marketers have known this for years, right? People make decisions based on, on an emotional mm-hmm. set. And, and I'm, this is not to denigrate and say, oh, emotions. Emotions are, have steered us well for many millions of years of evolution. They're finely tuned. I tell people to trust their intuition a lot. And the question is, Is there a way to hack into that system and understand how I can change my own belief systems even faster? And if I find that, then I'll share that.
0: And there totally is. Yeah, there's lots of books out there that discuss our unique way of looking at the world and our decision making process, which you've alluded to, is for the most part done through our emotional and instinctive reactions to things. And so very seldom do you find people that are able to create that system of making a decision where they're able to balance or mitigate their emotion. Because oftentimes emotion doesn't necessarily lead to the best, you know, best outcome. But uh, have you read uh, Robert Greene's new book, The Laws of Human Nature? I have not. Yeah, we had him on here earlier. So he wrote, you know, the Forty Eight Laws of Power and a few other best-selling New York Times Uh, best-selling. Yeah, I read that one. That was a great one. Yeah. yeah. So he's uh, it's just fascinating because I, you know, with what you've talked about here, I know I haven't commented that much, but this is what we've been discussing on the podcast for the last three and a half months. Is a lot of these topics, and it's interesting just to see you know, the alignment, because I see a lot of others that are speaking to these things as well. So hopefully this kind of convergence of theory around what's to come in the future, you know, allows there to be some breakthroughs by people to actually take control. Because in the end, the theory and the strength of that theory isn't necessarily one person, right? It really comes down to a group of people, a larger group of people that are able to Help to, you know, combat the status
1: quo, which right now is also, I would say, in a sense, gaining power. Interesting. No, I, I love the topic area and I'm learning a lot about it. It's a little bit art, a little bit science. And I love, I love where science is going with us now, you know, so once upon a time, you know, you had sort of this crude ego id, Carl Jung, you know, great giants, right? But we've learned more since then. And now we understand the neurobiology and the neuroendocrinology. We understand how the sympathetic and the nervous sympathetic, we parasympathetic system. We understand our, our amygdala. We understand the wiring a little bit. And even with that, that understanding is nice but insufficient. And now we can understand how to take our associative thought trees and begin to use those to rewire things. Our brains are more plastic than we thought. And so this dialogue between the emotion and the cortex, there's ways to more rapidly get to change that. So seeing how that's advanced and how that's developed and you're watching all these really bright people start to put some pieces together. Here's my operative model, mind, body, spirit, or energy, chi, prana, I don't care what you call it. God, it's all good. But if you get all three of those in alignment, I've seen people make changes in minutes, right? Including people who've been in so-called talk therapy or pharma therapy for years, if not decades, stuck, right? And then just in minutes with the right combination, ding, 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 see those changes happen. So Most of those things now are found at the edges. That's why I told you again, I spend my time at the edges, you know, mainstream orthodoxy, go get your main clinical psychology degree out of Case Western. And they're 20 years behind what's actually out there now on the forefront. So to me, it proves in the pudding, does it work or not work, period. You know, and I've seen with my own eyes and my own experience, these things work. And that's good enough for me. And I'm pretty skeptical guy.
0: I would love to go off on that tangent right now about all of what you just said, but for sake of time. I'm assuming you've written about that on your blog and talked about that on your podcast.
1: Yeah, it's sort of smattered around. It's there. But like I said, I have all these big areas that we're looking at and trying to synthesize them into some sort of coherent story. It's a lot to look at. We live in the information age, you know, do the best. Overwhelmed
0: with it. Yep. So how can listeners learn more about you, learn more about peak prosperity, about your podcast and, and what you're up to?
1: Sure, lots of ways. PeakProsperity.com is the main website. It has public and also a subscription newsletter service. So, the subscription side, really for people who want to go a little deeper into these topics and have these conversations one on one in a comment area behind the scene. And we're on Twitter at Chris Martinson, and we're also on YouTube, ChrisMartinson.com. That was my old website name before we changed, and you're penalized if you change your channel. So, that's legacy. It's still there. And just Google. You'll find lots and lots of so people wanted to start somewhere. The first time they've heard of me, haven't watched anything. Start with the accelerated crash course. 53 minutes takes the entire body of the three E's and plunks it down into one spot. That hour or just under an hour, that'll change your life if you haven't watched it before. It has for a lot of people. So start there. And then our book, Prosper, with an exclamation point on uh, Amazon, that's the solution set where we go into each of those eight forms of capital mentioned financial capital, emotional capital, there's six others. And so we sort of break each one of those down with the theory, the hypothesis that if you're rich across all eight, you're going to be resilient, happier, healthier today, just more ready for whatever's coming in the future, whatever that is, whenever it comes. Chris, it's
0: been an honor to have you on. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and we'll push all of those links on the show notes. So if you guys want to check out thewealthstandard.com, if you weren't able to write those references down, then we'll have it all there for you. Chris, thanks again. All right, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, Please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show. Head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.